Well, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's uh, absolutely wonderful to be invited to preach here. I remember when uh, Kevin first got in touch and it was a little bit bewildering, but also obviously it's a great privilege. Um, It's always a great privilege to preach, but particularly in a context where you know so many of the people and you know, I'd like to say I love so many of you. And yeah, that brings with that extra pressures, but also obviously an extra great privilege. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 17. In introducing this sermon, and I find in introducing any sermon, it's always a, a difficulty. Where do you begin? What do you begin with? Do you begin with a picture? Do you try and capture people's minds uh, with some sort of pithy saying? Do you draw their attention to an everyday example or something that's in the news? Often people like to choose Prince Harry uh, and Meghan as an example just because they seem to populate our media so much at the moment. Uh, But when I was reading through these verses and when uh, I've been meditating on them so long, I couldn't get out of my mind a question that I'm often asked as a young preacher. People often look to me uh, and ask me, I think, uh, viewing me as somewhat as, well, this person's going to be a a pastor in the future. What knowledge do I need to give them? What wisdom do I need to pass on to them? Uh, They always try and tell me the one thing that they think the church needs. It's actually a, a blessing to be in that situation because you're told some very profound things. I'll give you some examples. One person said to me, who I was very close to, the one thing the church needs is revival. We need great revival. We need for the world to completely change its mind, for people to change their hearts and to be disposed towards God, to turn to him in kind of mass numbers. And of course, that would be an absolutely wonderful thing. Another person said, the one thing that the church needs today is understanding. They say ignorance is the problem with the church. It's the reason we're not living out as churches how we ought to be, and it's the reason we're not growing as we ought to be. I think these are just two examples of how you might ask and answer that question. Uh, But I want to consider this morning, what this evening even, (laughs) what Paul's answer to this question was to the church in Corinth. He seems to give them a manifesto uh, in 1 Corinthians 1 here for how they are to live as a church in a hostile environment, in a difficult environment. Paul takes in these verses that we're going to study the Corinthian church back to first principles. He takes them back to what their work is. When everything is taken away from the church, all the bells and whistles, all the outward regalia, what are they left with? What is their fundamental work? Well, as we consider this question, I want to first begin with the context that they were in. What was Corinth? What was the context in which the church is found? And of course, what is the context of this book? Why is Paul writing to them? What are their difficulties? Well, thankfully, uh, I was blessed with having Johnny speak to us this morning from Acts chapter 18. And anyone who was there will see Uh, a a lot 
that he already brought out for us. That passage of Acts 18 brings to us a few things about Corinth. As he mentioned, it was an extremely multicultural place. It was where people would pass through. It was a common trade route. It was one of the capitals of a major Roman province in the day. So it was a multicultural area. Lots of different people there. It's multi-religious, as Johnny brought us. There was a tabernacle, but also pagan temples. There were Jews, but also Greeks. Notice also, it was a multi-moral place. I know that's not actually a phrase, but when you've got the the multi thing going, you need to try and stick with it. Multi-moral. As Johnny brought us, the phrase to Corinthianize in the first century was in some way an insult. To Corinthianize was to be engaged in filthy activities. It's not a particularly good thing for the place of Corinth. Corinth had... Uh, a rich Greek history. Uh, It was a a Greek city uh, before the Romans took it over, and then it became Roman province at around 27 BC. Uh, And so in these times, it was nevertheless a a Greek place still. There was Greek culture kind of deep within the foundations of first century Corinth. One historian of the day recalls the temple of Diana, the temple of Diana, the goddess. And Corinth was, uh, in many ways, such an immoral place that prostitution was actually a religious activity. One of the historians of the days called Strabo recounts that there were 1,000 or more sacred prostitutes in the temple of Diana. It was not a morally upright place. Well, this is the context in which the Corinthian church were found. Well, let's consider the context of the letter. Paul is writing this letter after planting the church, as we saw this morning in Acts 18. He labored there for a year and a half. And then he receives news. He receives news in two forms. First, they send formal questions to him. The Corinthians ask him questions about a number of issues, and he mentions that in the letter. But he also heard bad reports. Paul heard news of some very profoundly bad things happening in the Corinthian church. And so he's drawn, he's compelled to write this letter out of love for this church that he planted, these people that he loved. And when we look at our verses this evening from verse 17 forward, we see him present to the Corinthians an argument about the gospel, about their fundamental work. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here in these verses, he points to the fact that the message of the cross, the fundamental message for Christians in that context was a message of embarrassment, a message of foolishness. The Greeks would look at it, as he says in verse, 17, in verse 20 and then verse 22, and seek after their philosophical wisdom. They were a philosophical people. They had a rich heritage of Plato, Aristotle, and all these different philosophers. They would look at the cross at the Christian message and say that is utter foolishness. 
that is not like our philosophies, which are sophisticated. And the Jews would request signs. Look at verse 22. For Jews request a sign. It was not only foolish to the Greeks. No, the gospel and what the Corinthian church were about was foolish to the Jews. The Jews were a people obviously deeply rooted in the Old Testament, and they saw signs as the thing of value. Of course, a religion based mainly on the death of your savior, of your king, of your ruler, is not a particularly impressive sign. Everyone saw the Christians as slightly strange, deranged people. They were outcasts, they were unusual. And yet, Paul has a message of hope for them in these verses. I want to consider uh, and zoom in for this sermon on only a few words in particular. In verse 21, it reads this, and I'm reading the New King James Version, but the different translations render it relatively similar. There aren't great differences. Paul says this, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. Here we find, it seems, the center of Paul's argument concerning the foolishness of the Christian message that was mocked, but also its power. The fact that it was this message that was mocked, which was viewed as weak, which actually had a great power, even the power of God. He calls it the wisdom of God. He says, it pleased God to use this foolishness to save his people. Well, we've got two points, and the points are simply the words we find in the text. Point number one, the foolishness of the message. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. I want to return to that introductory question. What did the Corinthians need? Paul was clearly convinced that they needed to stand on God's special message of foolishness. There's an immense irony in this argument of Paul. Again, turn to verses 22 to 23 with me. He says, the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The Jews seek this, the Greeks seek that, but we preach a crucified man. He says that our message on the surface, the thing that we preach, the thing that we have hope in, the thing that we hold to as the center of our faith, it is something completely different to what the world stand for. I've already said it was an absolute joke to the first century world, the Christian message. You can see this throughout all of early church history. It doesn't have to be in the time of Paul's writing. It follows on for hundreds of years after. You can go and look at Roman graffiti. It's actually very interesting. If you look at Roman graffiti, I'll point you to one in particular. There's this piece of graffiti called Alexamenos graffiti. And this piece, you can find it in Rome today. It is called Alexamenos worships his God. It is seemingly a Roman mockery of a Christian, and it is a picture of this chap, evidently, called 
Alexamenus worshipping a man on a cross. The man on the cross looks weak. He has a donkey's head, which just represents silliness, ridiculousness. Uh, And this is how the Christians were viewed. Alexamenus is this deluded man that worships a defeated king. But notice the irony here for Paul. It is the message that is foolishness. It is the crucified king. It is the pointless and deranged people that have the power to save those who believe. It pleased God through the foolishness to save those who believe. The very message that the world mocks is the very message that will arrest their hearts and save them from their sins. It is the message that they see as foolish and weak that will powerfully change their lives. I have a friend who, whenever he gives his testimony, puts it in a wonderful way. He says, when he begins, let me tell you about how God dealt with me. And then he goes on to tell how he became a Christian. Of course, it's a story of him putting his faith in God, of him discovering the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he views it as God dealing with him. He recognizes that, of course, if it wasn't for the work of grace, if it wasn't for God, he would still to this day be mocking the Christian message. You see, in Paul's day, it was the message of the cross in particular, of the Savior dying for the sins of his people that was foolishness. But I want us to consider what parts of the gospel are considered foolish in our day. What parts are we embarrassed by? Is it, I think, maybe the justice of God? The idea that God will send some people to hell who do not worship him. Is it the idea of Christ's lordship? We don't like authority figures today. Is it the fact that he will return and every knee will bow, every tongue confess? They're just a couple of suggestions, but I'm sure we know the things that we're embarrassed by in our own hearts. What Paul is saying is that these are the very things that have power We must preach the foolishness, preach the embarrassment. It is the foolishness of the message that God will use to save his people. Maybe you've heard of Tom Holland. He's an author of a famous book called Dominion. He's maybe a popular historian. He writes for different newspapers. I heard an interview that someone was doing with him once, and he said something very profound. Of course, he's not a Christian. He's an agnostic of sorts. But he said this. He said, if church history tells us anything, it is that Christians need to preach the weird stuff. He says that throughout history, the times that the church was strongest were when the Christians preached the weirdest things. It's when the Christians very powerfully preached about the virgin birth, something that today's society views as absolutely ridiculous. 
It's when the Christians preach about the resurrection of their Savior and the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, the man, will return and we will see him. Every eye will see him. He says, just from his historical perspective, the church history shows that is where the power of Christianity lies. Or consider the words of Martin Luther. No one quite says things like he did today. He says, if I profess with loudest voice and clearest expression every portion of the truth, except that little point which the world and the devil are presently attacking, I am confessing no Christ at all. Of course, in Luther's words, it's very dramatic uh, and powerful, but we all get his point. The power of the gospel lies in all the gospel, not the parts that people like to hear. In the Corinthian world, in the culture that the church was in, in the ideological milieu or the morality that surrounded them, the Corinthians had one task, and it was to stand on the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, we have considered the foolishness of the message, but I want to consider secondly, the foolishness of the message preached. Notice that word. He does not say it pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. He says, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. When I read out of the NIV earlier, it actually renders this, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching. Now, if you look at the Greek construction, that's a, a healthy translation. It translates it correctly, but it doesn't quite communicate the meaning, which is what the New King James translators do, because in preaching there, it's not simply the act of speaking with some authority. It's the act of preaching the gospel message. And so the foolishness of the message preached is maybe a more helpful way of putting it for us as we consider the particularities of the phrase. So we return again, what did the Corinthians need according to Paul? Well, notice they needed more than merely a message. They needed the foolishness of the message. They needed that message preached. Amidst the challenges of the Corinthians, amidst all the difficulties they were facing, Paul's manifesto for them was not merely to stand on the gospel. It was to preach it. Notice how he does not say that they need to stand on the gospel unlettered for once, for want of a better phrase, in word form. He doesn't exhort them to write the gospel down and give it as tracts, even though that is obviously an extremely good thing to do. No, he has something slightly different for them. And he says the power lies in the gospel preached. He says they don't only need a powerful message, but they also need a God-ordained method of delivering that message to the world. I want to show you two reasons, not even found within 1 Corinthians, 
as to why this is the case. Firstly, because preaching, preaching this message is God's chosen method of delivery. He says himself, it pleased God. And notice, he's not saying, I think you should, but he's saying, it pleased God. He's evoking God here. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He's saying preaching is God's plan just as much as the message that is preached is. This is why Christians in the past have often referred to preaching as maybe the primary means of grace. That's common language if you go back any time before about 100 years ago. All this means is that it is the usual, special, God-ordained tool by which God will build his kingdom. Now that doesn't suppose that people cannot be saved if they do not hear the word preached. I know people, I have friends who opened up the Bible and were saved by reading its contents. But it does say that the main way people will be saved is through the preaching of the word. And I'm sure we can all testify to that just in our experience. The main way people are saved is by coming into this building and hearing people tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to quickly track this theme and show you why it's so important throughout the whole of the New Testament. I want to go first to Luke chapter 24 to show that this is actually what Jesus gave to the disciples just before he ascended. Luke chapter 24 and verse 46 and following. Luke 24, 46. Then he, that's Jesus, said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now Luke provides us with a wonderful account of this because it's right at the end of Jesus's ministry. If you look at the next five verses, Jesus then ascends into heaven. He leaves the disciples. It's the last thing, but he says that it should be preached. And he even gives particularities. He gives a prophecy. He says it will be preached in Jerusalem. Now turn to Acts chapter 2 verse 14 for me. Acts chapter 2. And we see this wonderfully worked out. Jesus not only told the disciples your work is to preach, but then they go and do it. Acts chapter 2, basically at the beginning of Acts, of course, written by Luke to the same person. He records the ascension of Christ and then the, the apostles, the disciples don't know what to do. Then the Holy Spirit comes powerfully upon them. And what is the first thing that happens? Acts 2.14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And then he preaches a big sermon. It was the preaching in Jerusalem of Peter that began the apostolic ministry. This was the first sermon of the early church recorded wonderfully for us. And I want to show you it doesn't only begin 
with preaching. But the book of Acts is actually bookmarked by the theme of preaching. So the first apostolic act you see is preaching. Turn to the absolute end of Acts, Acts chapter 28, and from verse 28. We began with Peter, now we end with Paul. From the beginning to the end, Acts 28, verse 28. Therefore, this is Paul speaking, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. The end. Acts begins and ends. Our account of the apostolic ministry, the ministry of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, begins and ends with preaching. But it doesn't end there. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy is a wonderful book to read, for we get to know the apostle Paul in such depth. It's right near the end of his life. He even speaks of finishing the race. He views this letter to Timothy as him passing on the baton. He's done his work. The work of the gospel in his generation is finished and now he needs to pass it on to Timothy. What is he going to tell Timothy in this closing exposition at the end of his letter? 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. And he brings on Timothy the name of Christ. He says, I charge you therefore before God And the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And when he finishes there with the words, fulfill your ministry, read the rest of 2 Timothy, read 1 Timothy, That is code language for preach the word. Fulfill your ministry of preaching, of going around the churches, supporting them in the preaching of the word. I've presented this account of preaching in the New Testament because I want us to see that it begins with Jesus Christ appointing his disciples with the commission to preach and then the disciples appointing people after them at the end of the apostolic era. In other words, people in the same situation as us, the early church, with exactly the same commission. A lot of people want to read the New Testament and say, well, it's okay that Paul went around preaching. He had a special anointing of the Spirit, but us is a different work. No, Paul tells Timothy, you better preach the word. He brings on him the name of, 
of God. He says, before God, who judges the living and the dead, preach the word. It's a very solemn thing to consider our responsibility. And when you look back to 1 Corinthians, is this not Paul saying the same thing to them? It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He says, Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom. But what do we do? We preach Christ crucified. This is what Paul has for the Corinthians. They are not only to have the foolishness of the message, but they are to have the foolishness of the message preached. And it is because it is God's special way of saving his people. But I also want to give you a second reason as to why it is the foolishness of the message preached. And secondly, it is because it's not only God's special way of saving his people, but it's also God's own method of saving his people. That is to say that the teaching we find here and in the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, we must conclude that God is present in the preaching of his word. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 and following. We had Johnny bring us chapter verse 13 this morning. Well, I want to read verse 13 and the following verses because here Paul is asking, well, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. They're going to be saved, but they can't be saved if they don't hear. And he gives the answer, well, how are they going to hear? What are we going to do? What's our task? Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I want us to track Paul's line of thought here. He says, how are they to hear unless no one preaches to them? His assumption is that they will hear by preaching. His assumption is that the gospel will go to the Gentiles by preaching. And we see it in his own life. How does he work that out? Well, he spends his whole time preaching. I also want to draw your attention to the second question he asks there, though. Verse 14, how shall they believe in him, that's believe in Christ, of whom they have not heard? Now, our translations actually don't render the words literally here. What they do is they seek to make sense of the Greek text, but I would argue it's maybe a foresight of them overseeing actually a very profound biblical point of view. For if you consult any textual Greek New Testament 
commentary, they will all show you that what Paul is actually saying here is how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard. If you actually have an ESV Bible, you'll see the footnote says that very thing. The same with my New King James here. It says it in the footnotes. It says literally him whom. That's the way the Greek is most closely to be rendered. Well, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that when they hear the preacher, they are hearing Christ. How shall they believe in him, in Christ, whom they have not heard? How are they to hear Christ speak unless we preach to them? God is present in the preaching of his word. Turn to me to another text that shows this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll just look at verse 20. Here Paul says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What does Paul say here? He says, we, preachers, are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? Well, an ambassador is a representative. They speak on behalf of another. So when NATO get together and they discuss various political issues, the British ambassador speaks for Britain. The Russian ambassador, obviously, it falls down because they're not part of NATO, but the Russian ambassador speaks for the interests of Russia. Well, the preacher speaks on behalf of Christ. And notice what he goes on to say, as though God were pleading through us. As though God were speaking his message through the human preacher. I want to turn to the passage we looked at this morning even. Acts chapter 18. What did Johnny bring us from that? He pointed out that Paul was preaching He was compelled by the Spirit in verse 5, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. We were shown that they opposed him. They opposed the preaching of Paul and they blasphemed. What Johnny showed us from that is that when they opposed the preaching of Paul, they opposed the Lord Jesus Christ personally. When they opposed the preacher, they opposed the one that preached through him. This is a very profound doctrine of the New Testament, but I'd argue that it is an absolute necessity for us to believe. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1. It has pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It has pleased God through his message preached to save his people. It's through God, through his message, through his preaching, to save his people. This is also what is assumed by basically the early Christians and the Christians in the New Testament. This is not just an argument that I have. It's been confessed by Christians throughout history. Turn first with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17. This is an assumption of Paul again and again in the letters 
to the churches. Ephesians chapter 2.17, he speaks of Christ coming to them. He says, and he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Now go and read your Bible. Christ never went to Ephesus. And even if he did and it wasn't recorded, there sure weren't those Ephesians there. So how did Christ preach to the Ephesian church in Ephesus? He preached through the preacher. Look to me at chapter 4. If I can find my verse. (laughs) There we go. Chapter 4 verse 20. He does exactly the same thing. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him. And have been taught by him. As the truth is in Jesus. He's saying you have been taught by Jesus himself. And yet we know that at this time, Jesus was risen and ascended. He wasn't in Ephesus. He was taught through the preaching. Consider also the testimony of Christians throughout history. Augustine of Hippo, a 4th to 5th century early church father, arguably the most profound Christian thinker, an influential Christian thinker across all Christian denominations throughout history. He said that when the preacher preaches, we hear God speak to his people. Maybe you've heard of John Calvin, one of the reformers of the 17th century. He said his words, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, God speaks to us as if he himself had openly appeared from heaven. And what about Martin Luther? I love this section from Fred Muser, who's a Lutheran historian who studies the preaching method of Luther. Fred Muser says this, For Luther, preaching was not a preacher's ideas stimulated by the prod of a text. It was not the preacher's reflections about God and life. Christian preaching, when it is faithful to the word of God, is God speaking. When it presents Christ so that faith becomes possible, it is God speaking. It is God's very own audible address to all who hear, just as surely as if Christ himself has spoken it. This is what Christians and Protestants have believed throughout history, that when Paul speaks of the foolishness of the message preached, That is God's message of foolishness and God's method of preaching. Paul's message to them was crystal clear. Their job was to be a people who engaged in, week in, week out, gospel proclamation. Preaching the foolishness of the message, no matter how much they were mocked, unto the salvation of God's people unto the building of his kingdom, even in the wicked city of Corinth. Notice again, I've said again and again, this isn't Paul's way. It's God's way. He says it has pleased God to save his people. His message of foolishness, his method of it preached. 
Well, as we turn from the Corinthian context and these words to application, asking, how does this apply to us? You might ask, what does a message about the necessity of upholding the gospel preached have to do with me? I know that as I look at the number of you, not many of you are preachers. Not many of you will preach. What does this have to do with you? Well, this gospel, this message, this message delivered in preaching has to do everything with every Christian. It is given to the church. Was Paul speaking these words to the preachers? Does he especially address the ministers in the Corinthian congregation? No, he doesn't. I want to see the beginning of the letter. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Paul addresses his letter to the church of God, which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And as New Testament Christians, we believe if you are the Lord Jesus Christ's, You are a saint. This message is for every single Christian. So what does it mean for us? Well, I have three short points of application. What does this mean? Firstly, it means we need to support our preachers. We have to support our preachers. And we have to do this, I've put in two ways, but I'm sure there are many, many more that you could come up with yourself. First, supporting our preachers in attendance to their preaching. I want to ask this question, and it draws my attention back to that old man who said to me, the thing that the church needs today is revival. Well, I want to say back, I absolutely agree, but there ain't going to be any revival until the Christians at the churches think the preaching is good enough to lead to that. If we don't attend the preaching, if we think it's so naff, if we're disinterested in it, why on earth are the world going to be interested? We're meant to be Jesus' followers, and yet we can't attend to the preaching of his word. How can we expect revival to come if we don't think the thing happening in here, week in, week out, every single Sunday, is worth reviving? How is it going to happen if we don't believe it is God's work? If we don't believe it is the most powerful, profound, and amazing thing that is taking place? The simple thing is that we have to support our preachers in loving their preaching, in attending to their preaching, in bringing people to their preaching. Second, we need to support our preachers in prayer. Go and read through the Pauline epistles, the letters he writes to the various churches, and what are called the general epistles, all the other letters written to churches by people like James and Peter and John, and count actually count how many times they ask the churches to pray for them. It doesn't matter if you're an apostle. It doesn't matter if you can 
actually raise people from the dead, if you can heal the sick, if you can cast out demons, your preaching is pointless if the people are not praying for you. Maybe you've heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers that has ever stepped in this country, at least I would argue, just from the effect he had. Spurgeon stood up in Crystal Palace and preached to 20,000 people, and he would address the people at the back by name because he saw them walk in. Well, Spurgeon said this in a sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was the church that he ministered at in front of thousands. He said, I would give up my preaching now if it were not for my congregation praying for me downstairs. The confidence that the preacher is to have, the confidence that we are to have, is not a naive view that the words that come out of the preacher's mouth are golden, are special. No, we are to have a view that when we pray that the Lord will give us the gift of his word, he will not keep it from us. Ask and I shall give it to you. Jesus said again and again, ask that I give you my spirit and I will give it to you. The Holy Spirit cannot be kept from us. Well, we must pray for preaching. We must pray that people will be affected by it. We must pray that we might have our lives changed by it. We must pray that God will be present in it. So firstly, we must support our preachers. Secondly, we must have confidence in our preachers and in preaching. Do we believe this is really what the church needs? I'm not going to say that Paul's message to the Corinthians was that it was the only thing they needed. He addresses issue after issue in 1 Corinthians and then has to write 2 Corinthians because there were a load more issues. And a lot of people argue that there is within these books actually reference to a third letter that he wrote that we don't have. This isn't just a one, a one resolution thing that Paul gives them. He actually goes on and writes chapter after chapter after giving them this advice, this instruction. But it is nevertheless true that if the Corinthians had this message, if they had this message preached, they had all that they needed. They had the Lord Jesus Christ building his kingdom in the city of Corinth. Do you believe this is what the church needs? Do you believe that when we hear preaching that is God speaking to us? Do we believe that Christ is present I had a, a friend who wrote a blog and I went and read it. I found it really interesting. He said this. He said, suppose the mainstream media knew that God was going to speak from heaven to people at an appointed time in a specific place. In that case, you would expect them to show up with cameras and reporters. Well, if what I've said this evening is true, then we should be far more confident about the preaching of the word 
of God. If God is really speaking in the preaching of his word, then we need to bring people along. We need to have confidence that preaching saves. We need to have confidence that what happened in Acts chapter 2, if I went and read that narrative to you, you would see that thousands were saved and baptized straight away. That's the power of apostolic preaching. And as we saw earlier, it's the same power that Paul hands to Timothy. So we must have the same confidence in preaching as they did. We must believe it is powerful and bring people to it. And thirdly, I want to ask this question, do we love this message and do we love it preached? We've already touched on this, but does hearing the word of God truly make our hearts alive? Is it something that we can't go without? Is it something that is precious to us? Is it something that we cling to as crucial to our Christian lives? It must be. And on the other side of this, for the preachers here, is it our greatest privilege to preach this message? Richard Baxter, and some might say in writing these words, he was a bit of a drama queen, but he did know how to turn an excellent phrase. In reflecting on his long preaching ministry, he used these words. He said, every time I stepped into the pulpit, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. He felt so convinced that the work that he was doing was a work of life, that the power wasn't within him, that he was simply a dying man, a pointless man, a man that had no strength within himself, that had no use of his rhetorical tools, that had no ability to move people unless it was for the grace of God. And yet he would preach, he would contend, he would rebuke, he would exhort as if these things are for life or for death. As preachers, we must preach as a dying man to dying man. And in conclusion, I want to return to that original question and ask, well, what is the one thing that we need? Now, I'm not going to say that the answer to that question is we need to stand for the gospel and preach it. But I certainly think that Paul's message to the Corinthians here compels us to at least have that at the heart of the answer. Is our context, is our country, is this village really that different from first century Corinth? The people are basically the same. We all strive for the same things. We all get caught up in the same mess. There is nothing new under the sun. So I think that means that this message that Paul had for them is a message just as relevant for us. Are we going to stand for the foolishness of the message and are we going to preach it? 
We need to preach that weird stuff that Tom Holland talked about. The things that are seemingly embarrassing to us, that the world looks on as foolish and silly. The power is in those things. Just as we close, I want to tell you a story that I heard from a missionary who attended Papua New Guinea. He went out there for 20 years. He went to the Itedi people. They had no understanding of any other language than their tribal language. They requested a missionary, and he went out. And the stories he tells are absolutely staggering about the way that they lived when he first went with his wife. He says that they would put out their unwanted children to be eaten by ants. He said that the men would regularly beat their wives. It was basically standard procedure. And he said that what happened to the children, particularly the young girls, was absolutely vile and disgusting. They abused them in every possible way. And he said every single day he woke up and saw this community do these wicked things. He felt like taking a shotgun to the lot of them. It was utter wickedness. He could see the wives who were bleeding from being beaten by their husbands. He could see the consequences of sin all around him. But in telling the story, he goes back again and again to the one thing that held him from simply leaving that place and saying, you know, may these wicked people be cursed. And it was the fact that he knew that if God was going to show grace to him, God would show grace to them by the foolishness of the message preached. He knew that if he could preach to them in their language, then they would be saved. He did. He learned the first language, took him two years. He learned the second language, took him another two. And then throughout that time, he had to acquire the culture. He had to understand what was their religious system. And then he preached them the first time after about six years. And within about two months of preaching to them through the gospel of Matthew, he came to the cross. And after that sermon, immediately a number of them were saved. They were baptized. And now if you go to the Atedi people in Papua New Guinea, there are thriving churches everywhere. And it's because of the confidence he had in the foolishness of the message preached. Well, I hope that that can be a thing to give us confidence. When we look at the communities that we live in, they are nowhere near as wicked as that, thankfully. People are not as opposed to the gospel as they were. And yet we have the same message and we have the same method of delivery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would give us a love for his word, that you would give us a desire to hear him speak to us in the preaching of that word, and that your Spirit would convict us to have great confidence in your message and your method. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.